Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the post-pandemic supply chain with my friend Peter Tershwell. How's it going, Peter? Uh, Really well, Joe. Thank you for uh, having me on your podcast today. I'm very excited to have Peter on my podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. And before we get into this, I I, want to just give my, my own personal two cents. This is a great podcast, and I've just said this to Peter before we hit record. It's always great to get someone like Peter who's been writing about this industry, been been an insider in this industry for a long time, and we do have some really significant issues, and they're right on the horizon. And so please take a listen to Peter because he's been there, done that, got the hat, and also he writes about it. So Peter, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. Thank you, Joe. So uh, my name is Peter Tershwell. My title is Vice President in the uh, Maritime Trade and Supply Chain Business of S&P Global Market Intelligence. I lead a team which is called the Journal of Commerce. Very nice. The Journal of Commerce was the historic daily shipping newspaper of New York City. And then that the oldest and oldest one? It's very old. Uh, put it that way, Joe. It was it was founded in in 1827, and it's going to be 200 years old in five years. And it was founded by Samuel Morse, the inventor of the telegraph and the uh, the polymath, <laughs> who was a, a portraitist and and also a, a bit of a prov- provocateur of his age. And even though the daily newspaper in print no was no longer published in, in print form as of the year 2000, the, the, the core team of journalists who are covering, you know, container supply chains, international logistics remained intact. And so it's my uh, honor and privilege to, to lead that team. And, and we're, we're cracking away, writing our stories every day and covering the market as best as we can for our readership. There, I will say this. We talked a little bit about this before we hit record, but I'm a, I am was a blogger. I wrote a million articles and uh, a lot of them in my name, but a lot also just ghostwriting. And I'm not an academic, so I would go online and say, I have to find this, right? I was writing a lot about LTL, truckload, whatever I was writing about. And I would always find the Journal of Commerce. And sometimes, every once in a while, I'd get lucky and it wouldn't be behind a paywall. And I was like, oh, my God, this is beautiful. And then I, then I would find myself sometimes saying, I'm not paying for that right now. But I would type in Journal of Commerce and look and find somebody else who wrote about it, who actually had a subscription. But it always had the best, and I'm assuming still does, have the very best insights. Well, you know, it's a, it's a very committed team of, of uh, very specialized business journalists. I'm sorry that, uh, that our content was, was behind a paywall. It's <laughs> difficult to access. So you got to get paid. <laughs> but we've always stuck to that. We've always insisted that we be paid for our content. And, uh, and, and as a result of that, it, it sort of reinforces the ethos among the uh, editorial team that you're writing real information for paying readers and that your, the quality and the depth and the originality uh, and the sourcing of your of, of what we're writing has to rise to a level of value that people are willing to pay for. So it holds us to a very very high standard, and you know that's good. We, we, it's good to be held to a high standard. I will say this: being a blogger is easy because you're not held to kind of the journalist standard. It's a point of view sometimes. It's it's and it's never you for the most part bloggers aren't doing their own research right you're bringing it you're going in places like journal of commerce and going oh here's what they said right and i i would reference i would always reference back to the articles i, I that i that i talked about but journalists they actually have to research stuff well unless you're a political journalist then you don't then sky's the limit you do whatever you want <laughs> but, but anyway was journal of commerce bought by s&p so we've actually gone through a number of, of ownership changes since my time with the organization. We were we were owned by a, a, a daily newspaper company called Knight Ritter. Oh yeah, that's they they own a lot, right? Yeah, we were owned by them. We were owned by the Economist at one point during the nineteen nineties. Fancy. We went through a couple of private equity rounds. We were eventually acquired uh, in twenty fourteen by a company called IHS, which is 
sort of a, a you know a data analytics subject matter expertise type firm. IHS then eventually merged with uh, with Market to create IHS Market. Then IHS Market merged with with S and P in February, and then we became part of S and P. Yeah, and so S and P is one of the biggest research companies out there. So what does S and P do? Just to give us the back of the napkin of that. Well, it's a it's a it's a diversified information company. It 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 has the uh, it runs uh, major indices like the S and P five hundred, the, the 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 Dow Jones, S and P Dow Jones indices is a, a major provider of. of- so everybody listening works with S&P, whether they know it or not. <laughs> because Most I mean, likely, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, so you own stocks, you probably own something from that index. But there's also very, very rich data and, and, and subject matter expertise around, around maritime, international trade, other sectors, including energy, petrochemical, uh, automotive, financial. So it's, uh, but I can tell you, it's, it's really very uh, it's exciting to be part of a part of an organization that the heart and soul of which is, is information and data, uh, because it's, uh, you know, there's no spinning the facts, you know, the facts are the facts and whether, whether, whether you like it or not. Right. Again, unless, unless you, uh, go to Washington, then you play whatever game you want. <laughs> get my slam in there, but, uh, <laughs> that, that's, it goes for both sides. But anyway, Peter, tell me a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you join the mighty Journal of Commerce and all those companies and then S&P. Yeah, sure. So I, I grew up in New York City. I grew up, grew up in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. I, I went to went to school in, in, in New York City and eventually went to a boarding school in Connecticut. And then I ended up at the- Fancy. At the, well, yeah, it was sort of a, I kind of view it as a semi-reform school at the time, <laughs> um, but uh, I survived it somehow. And uh, ended up going to the University of Maine and and did my undergraduate there. Uh, moved back to New York. I did my MBA in uh, at Fordham University. Wow. Got a good Jesuit graduate education. And then, sort of midway through my MBA, I was uh, trying to determine what my career was going to be, and and I decided that I was going to go into business journalism. And so, even though I had entered my MBA thinking I was going to go to work on Wall Street, I it kind of became a a, a journalism, a business journalism education for me. That's the reason why I was why I was doing it. And then when I came out of it, I was you know I could I could read a financial statement. I wasn't. You know, you know, intimidated by what companies were saying, I sort of understood it, and and that was a that was a great grounding to get into 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 shipping and transportation, uh, you know, sort of maritime journalism, where you know, fluency and or an, or an understanding of, of of business terminology and and, and numbers is, is you know somewhat helpful. Right. You know, it's interesting. I started my career in automotive. And I always think, you know, if you're in automotive, you think you're the center of the universe. I imagine people who sell insurance, they feel the same way. But I was in automotive product development. And then what I didn't realize until I moved over to the supply chain side and got into transportation is how closely people who follow trade are connected to transportation and logistics because that's the way you can see things. No one talks about the wonderful design of those products in those trucks. They said, nope, that was 16 trucks and it filled up this <laughs> this container, right? So uh, that's that's something that's been a big education of mine is when you talk about trade and you talk about commerce, you're talking about transportation and logistics. I, I to- totally agree, Joe. I mean, if you go to a you know, any sort of uh, international trade center gathering in, in any city, many of the people there are going to be freight forwarders, ocean carriers, logistics people, because fundamentally the, the, the mechanics of international trade, how international trade is actually physically carried out is through transportation, logistics, trade financing, you know, customs, brokerage, uh, er- areas like that. And, and that's pretty much when you talk about who the international trade community is. It's really those types of people. Yep. So you said you, you, you still live in New York, right? Correct. Yes. But you're in, you're in Maine today. So I'm in Maine, yes. Yeah. So, so I have the, uh, the, the privilege of being able to spend a few weeks during the summer up in Maine. And so that's where I, that's where I am at the moment. And, I have, and I'm very lucky to also have very high quality internet where I happen to be. So that, that allows me to come up here and actually get some work done. <laughs> yeah, it's not too shabby. Well, you got the best of both worlds. You got the New York City and then a little bit of uh little bit of little fresh air out there in Maine. 
So let's let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about the this post-pandemic supply chain. Before we hit record, we were talking about all sorts of different topics that we could touch on, and we finally came up with four that we thought were important that you thought were important. So the first thing we wanted to talk about is the Longshoremen Union. So take us through that. First off, tell us the difference between the East Coast, the West Coast, the unions themselves. Well, just just to set the scene, you know, any any company that is importing or exporting ocean containerized cargo in the U.S. or literally anywhere else in the world always has to pay very close attention to the longshore dock workers because they they control the movement of cargo through the ports. In the U.K., there is about to be a week-long strike or threatened strike by the dock workers. It's going to shut down the largest port in the U.K. We've seen dock worker unrest in, in northern Europe, several northern European ports this year. In the U.S., the reason why this has been such a focus of attention over the past many months is that is that whenever the, the, the dock workers union on the West Coast, which is called the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, and the employer, their counterparts in management, negotiate a new contract, t- typically associated with that negotiation is disruption on the docks, cargo s- slows down. I heard that's already happening. Is that there's been some slowdowns? I don't know. Please correct me if I'm wrong. No, not that not that we're aware of. Okay, I had read that, and again, that would have just been an opinion. I'll trust the Journal of Commerce on that one. <laughs> it's, it's certainly been on on everybody's mind. Uh, everybody's looking for it. Maybe they're seeing something that's not there. Well, and the reason why they're looking for it is because every time the dock workers and management have negotiated a new contract, going back to the 1990s, there has been some level of disruption on the docks. Right. A little shot across the bow. Just like, hey, just in case you forgot. <laughs> no question. Uh, we're pretty and, important. Over and here. actually, one of the reasons why there is very little uh, port congestion right now on the West Coast and why there's many vessels that are backed up off several East Coast ports is that is that m- many of the large retailers and, and other importing, com- importing companies uh, have have moved cargo away from the West Coast. Oh, in, in anticipation of a, po- of a strike. Correct. This is it's 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 unmistakable in the data that, that that that's what happened, and and they had good reason to be concerned because, you know, every time this has happened, there's been problems. Well, you did. We just got done with having uh, your container ship sitting a mile out <laughs> from the from the port, and they didn't want to go through it again. So so we got a little smart. We'll call it maybe not so smart, but but when let's just say that I normally went to Long Beach or L.A. What other ports are they? Would you consider the West Coast that are big? Well, well, they would. I mean, on the West Coast, there's L.A. Long Beach, which is the largest. It's two separate port authorities, but it's they're they're right next to each other. You could drive from one to the other. You'd really never know where one ends and where the next one begins if you, unless you happen to know the the specifics of the marine terminals. But you know, there's Oakland on the West Coast, and then there's there's uh, what's called the Northwest Seaport Alliance, which is which is a joint management of Seattle and Tacoma. What percent is Long Beach and LA? Because that's all we seem to ever focus on. In the neighborhood of about 40% of, of imports. And on the West Coast, how, what is it compared the, to the other yeah, ones? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, rough, roughly half of, of, of containers moving, moving in and out of the U.S., so it's going to be a yeah. All right. So so people got smart or they thought they got smart <laughs> and they said, I'm going to move it from the West Coast, maybe L.A. or Long Beach or the and, and they moved it to where? What would be East Coast ports they're moving uh, to? Some of it went through the Gulf Coast in, in Houston or Mobile or New Orleans. Others, a, a lot of it went to the to the southeast, including Savannah and Charleston. Jacksonville, some to Miami also. Also, it, it would have gone north to um, Virginia. Uh, New York, Baltimore. Are those boats going through the Panama Canal or do they go all the way around South America? No. So the container ships are not very, very infrequently and only on an ad hoc basis will container ships that are going from, you know, Asia to Europe or Asia to the north, north to the U.S. go like around Cape Horn or around the Cape of Good Hope. That's like thirteen thousand miles, right? Yeah, they're they're not they're not going to do that unless unless there's some extraordinary reason. What do they do instead? So typically, the the vessels that are coming from China, what, what sort of what's called North Asia, which would be China, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, they will go through the Panama Canal, 
and the Panama Canal several years ago was expanded. And so there's larger ships that can go through the Panama Canal. Typically, if the, uh, the, the cargo is originating in South, A- South Asia, which would be the Indian subcontinent, India, Bangladesh, Vietnam, you know, in Myanmar, you know, that, that, that whole, that whole region, oftentimes the, uh, that cargo will move on vessels transiting through the Suez Canal and they go through the Mediterranean, they go through, uh, the Straits of uh, Gibraltar and then across the Atlantic. Okay. So this brings us kind of to the next point. We don't have the big congestion at Long. Well, first up, before we leave the Longshoremen's Union, there's two different unions. There's which the one on the West Coast is the ILWU. Correct. And the one on the East Coast is the ILWA. Was the ILA, the International Longshoremen's Association on the East Coast. Yeah. Okay. ILWA. Yeah. It's, 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 it's hard to, to tell the difference sometimes. So they're affiliated, but they're not the same. No, they're, they're not, not the same, same union group. and they're not even affiliated. Oh, not at all. So they're, they're, two, they're they... two completely separate unions. Oh my God. I imagine they tried to get it together. At one... <laughs> and, 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 and what, and what has happened over many years, Joe, is that, is that the ILA on the East coast has, uh, has, has, maintained uh, peace on the on the waterfront going back to the 1970s there have been virtually no instances of you know dock worker initiated port disruption on the east coast a couple tiny little things that happened maybe one day or something but but for the most part if you're a walmart or if you're a lowe's a target or you know any any of the major moving companies moving tens of thousands of containers you, you have a lot more faith and trust in the in the stability of longshore labor on the East Coast and the Gulf Coast than you do on the West Coast. But it doesn't help if you got some coming from China because you'd rather it just unload on the West Coast, even if you have a little less trust. Right? Well, increasingly, increasingly, what's happened, and, and we've seen this in the market share figures. So the the market share of the East Coast and the Gulf Coast in handling cargo from China has steadily gone up over many many years. One of the one of the reasons is that is is just demographics. I mean, the southeast region of the U.S. is the fastest where the population growing. is. <laughs> yeah, but but also it's because you know there's more uh, stability and, and and reliability in in the supply chains. In part because of this reason, right? I can tell you this: being an automotive guy for a long time, we had unions. Unions were everything. Not, I mean, people talk think they know there's assembly plant unions, but there's engineers who are in unions in automotive, and what. For a long time, they just when the automotive, uh, when the big three here in Michigan were the only game in town, they could ask for anything, and they did. <laughs> and but what they started to do as time went on is the Japanese and the Europeans became, and the Koreans and everybody else became more competitive. The unions were still asking for the world, but then at some point they said, "Hey, if these companies that were part of." go out of business, we're gone, right? So they became a lot more reasonable over time. And I mean, that's human nature. And I can see the West Coast at some point saying, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa let's slow this down here, fellas. <laughs> Our jobs are moving to the East Coast. <laughs> they, they, they uh, every, a lot of people in the industry wonder when, when they're going to, when that's going to happen. It's going to happen. It, it, it hasn't happened yet. Give me a call, Pete. Come on. <laughs> so what are, what are the, so you said they're negotiating. What are they negotiating? Is it just pay? Is it working conditions? Is it what is it that they're um, they're uh, negotiating out there? So certainly pay benefits. The Longshore Union is very well aware on on both coasts that the the ocean carriers who who are uh, funding a lot of their wages and benefits uh, have had very good years. <laughs> they've had two great years and. And and they've they've made more money uh, the last two years than than they've made in in decades prior to this. So certainly they're they're they'll be negotiating negotiating on wages and benefits. On the West Coast, the the union is particularly opposed to the installation of automated cargo handling equipment and technology. And so they would like to make sure that they don't lose jobs when that happens. And even though on the West Coast, if you lose your job because of automation you know, a robot takes over, you know, you'll be compensated for the rest of your life. The, the longshoremen actually have a longer term view of that. They want to make sure that there is work for subsequent generations. It's ne- it's never about the worker. Because if I said to you, Peter, I'm going to automate your job and I'm going to pay you for the next 20 years, you're like, oh, I'm out. 
But but the union says, well, wait a sec. How is our union going to continue if Peter's done, <laughs> right? We need Peter's replacement. So unions never think in terms of what's good for just what's good for the people. They think, hey, how are we going to stay a sustainable business ourselves? And they are business. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a long view, and also you know these are these are multi generational families of of, of dock oh, yeah. workers, and they're looking out for the next generation of their own families. So it's a bit of a different way of thinking, but it's certainly reflected in their negotiating priorities when a new contract comes up. Right, and by the way, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. I heard that their contract was up during COVID, and then they just basically said we'll extend it. And we'll negotiate. Is that true? There was an attempt by the employers to extend the contract until after this crazy period of, of upheaval in supply chains had come and gone. The union declined to extend it and and demanded that the contract be negotiated on schedule. Right. And here's another, correct me if I'm wrong. I looked on Wikipedia, and I, I haven't looked at it lately, but I said the average average longshoreman union member was making 172 dollars a year does that sound about right yeah i mean they 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 do uh they make they make a great deal of money they're very very well compensated the from the point of view of the customers of their services that meaning the the marine terminal facilities the ocean carriers and even the customers the the importers and exporters they they don't object necessarily to these compensation levels. What what they really want is is productivity. They want a, well, they want the consistency and they want predictable service, right? Correct. That's they you know, they want big ships to come in to be loaded, unloaded, the cargo moved on its way. I mean that when when the system functions uh, uh, efficiently, when there's a very fluid sort of circulatory movement of assets of all kinds, whether whether the ships themselves, the containers, the trucks that are coming and going out of, in and out of the ports, when all that is moving, when it, when that whole system is in motion, well, that that's going to be a good thing for the direct participants as well as for the economy overall. So that's really what you know what what people are looking to longshoremen for. So and 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 in, in return, because of the economic value of that activity is so high. The, this level of wages, which which might seem very very high to somebody looking at it, actually is 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 not not excessive necessarily in the grand scheme of things. right. And I think if you compare it to the post container world, right, we would not have world trade the way we have it today without the container. So that container came in. I'm just going to throw this out like late 50s, early 60s, and I think it really caught its uh, stride during Vietnam when we could fill those containers. Having containers be, being loaded using a lot of machines um, is a lot different than we had pre-containers where you had just, I got to think, tons more longshoremen workers, but I know that job can be very dangerous too in the past. So you're, lo you're loading and unloading boats. There was a lot of damage, a lot of loss. I think it was probably a lot of injuries also. I mean, you could look at the container as being arguably the greatest standard in in, in the history of humanity. I mean, it's almost like the, the outlet that you plug your, your, your lamp or your computer into. I mean, it's, it's a standard that, that literally has transformed the global economy, but it wouldn't have happened unless there was agreement that the 40 foot container is going to be the standard. We're going to build ships around it, build all the associated equipment around it. And, and, and now you've got that system in place. What's that book that was written about that? I've, I've, I've got it on my, Phone, but uh well the, the the most famous book written about that was was actually written by a former JOC Journal of Commerce editor named Mark Levinson called The Box. Yes, yes. Guys, if you didn't haven't already read the the book, please do or li I listen to books. So uh, on Audible, get it. And uh when they go through the economics of pre-container ship versus container ship, you would just realize how much you would not be getting that inexpensive laptop from China or Taiwan or wherever it's built, if it wasn't for the box. <laughs> so definitely read that. Switching, God, you Journal of Commerce guys do everything. So switching gears here. So now we wanted to, the first thing we talk about is the Longshoreman Union. So before we leave it, 
when do you think they're going to ink a deal? And do you think we'll do it without a strike? Well, our, our reporting, uh, the latest of our reporting, because we've, we've talked to uh, many of the people who are very, very close to these negotiations, and the, there is a growing sense of optimism among the, the direct <laughs> participants that there is going to be a deal and it's going to happen with minimal, if not, if not no disruption. And there's, a, and there's a very specific reason for that, which is that uh, if there is one, and, and this is a purely analytical statement that I'm going to make, it's not a partisan statement politically in any way, shape or form. But if there is a Achilles heel for the Democrats and the Biden administration headed into the midterms, it is inflation. and and in the public imagination, if not in reality, to a certain degree, inflation is connected to port disruption and port congestion. So, so therefore, the Biden administration, unlike pr prior administrations, when the Longshore Union and management negotiate with each other, unlike prior periods, they have been all over these negotiations. They've been in regular daily contact with management, with the union. They know that there's a history of, uh, of these negotiations going off the rails. They, they're 100% aware of that. And, and they are under direct orders from the president to make sure that make it happen. Make it happen. <laughs> exactly right. They, the last thing that, that, that Biden and his people want is for this to go south. Because because the, the the consequences could 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 be could be political in in their yeah of course yeah and again so much of it becomes political and by the way it's since it's come up on my podcast before every once in a while when they start talking about political potential presidential candidates they say Pete Buttig Pete Buttigieg Mayor Pete and. He is not responsible. That's the Federal Maritime Commission is responsible for our ports, but he's responsible for transportation. I guess that's over the road stuff. But a lot of times they people just kind of throw it all together and go, hey, yeah, thanks a lot, Mayor Pete, as if he's the one causing all the grief. And um, I, I actually clarified this on my podcast in the past just because I don't, I don't want to be political about anything. But there is that criticism. You know, again, if anything that goes wrong, well, there's a driver shortage. Thanks a lot, Mayor Pete. And again, you only have so much power and only so much, so many levers you can pull from Washington. So oh, there, there, there's no question about it, Joe. I mean, I mean, what happened at the ports over the last two years was uh, beyond the control of, of anyone. It was, as we know, we were all stuck at home. We all decided to uh, engage in home improvement. The, the level of imports right now, the number of containerized imports coming into this country from Asia is roughly 30% higher than it was, you know, year to date in June, say, you know, January through June 2022 versus January through June 2019, up 30%. And, and the, the, the ports and combined with the labor shortages that we've seen combined with, with other factors, we're just, we're just unable to handle that, that level of volume. And and the and the system buckled, and and so you no no you know politician can be directly blamed for you know causing that. Yeah, especially Mayor Pete can't be blamed because now he's a Michigander or Michiganian. I don't know what they call us, but he he moved to Traverse City. <laughs> so his spouse's parents are from that area. So welcome, Mayor Pete. <laughs> anyway, so hopefully we'll get that Longshoreman Union taken care of here soon. So let's switch gears. So the second thing we wanted to talk about is the East Coast. So you mentioned a lot of people are, are had diverted ships from the West Coast where there's all these potential problems to the East Coast. And now that's jammed up. So talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, in, in general, what, what happens is, it, the, is basically this. The, there is a disconnect between, and there always has been, between when a container is offloaded from a ship and when the receiver of that cargo, whether it's some retailer, Walmart or Target or whoever it is, comes and picks it up. And so, so when you have a, a very, very high volume of, of imports and they are not being picked up, something happens. The, and it's very simple to understand. The, the, the container port is filled up. And when the port is filled up, it means that, that, that you either can't unload any more cargo or the, the process of 
loading and reloading, more to the point, slows down. And when it slows down, it means that the vessel is at the port tied up alongside the dock for a longer period of time. And there's only so many berth slots at any given port. Right. And when that happens, the, the ships back up and they have to go to anchor offshore. And, and that's one of the things that's happening. And this, and simultaneously, what, what happens is that some of the containers that are on a port facility, if you ever drive by a port facility and you see the containers stacked up, many of them have cargo in them waiting to be picked up to move to a distribution center, or they are export commodities waiting to be carried away by the ship. But a whole number of them are empty containers because we have a trade imbalance in this country. We have, a, we, we import a lot more, you know, we have a trade deficit. Well, well, that's reflected in the container system in the sense that there is a lot more imported containers right. than export containers. So therefore the, the, the empty containers have to be evacuated. They have to be repositioned, relocated back to a place like Asia. And, and so a lot of those are sitting on the docks right now as well. I heard, I heard during the pandemic that there were 70 to 80% of the containers leaving Long Beach and LA were empty going back to Asia. Yeah, there were. And, and, and now that became a, a, a political problem because last year, the, the spot freight rates were, went up so high because there was such heavy demand on the system that it drove the freight rates to uh, levels that, that nobody had ever had ever even conceived of. And so from, from the ocean carrier point of view, they were saying, we need to get as many empty containers as fast as we can out of the U.S. and back to Asia so that we can load them with very, very high paying import cargo. But in doing so, they denied, in many cases, the ability for farmers, agricultural exporters. I heard that. So so we actually had a reduction in export of ag products, right? It was very difficult for a while for uh, any number of agricultural exporters to be able to obtain bookings, to be able to, to obtain equipment. And what it did was it, it, it catalyzed a, 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 a political movement within the, the the confines of the of the shipping world to rewrite the shipping act the, the united states shipping law hadn't been the last time that it had been rewritten through legislation was 1998 well it happened again in 2022 it was this year and earlier this year and one of the reasons was the exporters were were outraged that that they were unable to obtain service to to export their commodities because the ocean carriers were prioritizing the removals of empty equipment so as to be able to capitalize on the huge run-up in freight rates on, on imports. Is it true also, Some of the, a lot of our exports are going out in bulk containers as opposed to containerized freight? And then it's come, so we're, we're getting consumer products in. So those come in containers and we're shipping sometimes raw material out? Correct. So, uh, you know, ag agricultural commodities will will be exported in in bulk bulk carriers in dry bulk ships where where and what and what though describe what that is for us for those so it's who a are vessel with because... a with a huge hold and you pour the you like take soybeans for example it gets <laughs> yes, poured exactly. in literally and and it's loaded in bulk that's what that's what they call it and usually bulk bulk stuff touches the side of the container itself and then at some point it gets dumped uh, you know wherever it's going. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, it's exported in, in bulk, but, but off, oftentimes uh, certain commodities will, if the, 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 the freight rates are at the right level and, uh, and oftentimes with, with agricultural commodities, there's a need for a purity among the specific commodity in terms of the, any chemicals that were used and seeds that were used. So to keep it discreet, they will package it in smaller components and 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 that is more easily shipped via ocean container yep okay sounds good so anyway what's also i've, I've said this you you probably hear it a lot more than i do given your your position but so many times during the pandemic people would say things like well they just need to run those ports 24 hours as and, and as if there's this really simple thing and i kind of look at it as um this really delicate balance of world trade that that had the ability to adjust up five ten percent and adjust down five ten percent, but as soon as we had that shortage one place and then a big spike in demand elsewhere, 
it just the, and by the way when you build in a whole bunch of um leeway it costs money so we we over time we're taking money out all the time and then when we have a time like the pandemic we find ourselves with a little less flexibility than we wanted but i don't think here in the US we suffered too much obviously some people got sick and died obviously they're suffering there but I didn't miss any meals. You might have noticed here. I did not. I got what they call COVID-20. <laughs> and I'm trying to work it off right now. <laughs> I hear you. Well, you, you do mention, uh, Joe, an important point, which is that uh, the leaders in the port industry do make the valid point that that there is a, a tremendous amount of port capacity that go, goes unused because the ports operate during the day, but they don't operate at night or they don't operate. Certainly, they don't operate on a full 24-7 basis. And, and it's been very difficult to get the entire system, including the receivers, the warehouses, the truckers, to acclimate to a 24-7 environment. Because in the middle of the night, there's no traffic on the highway. You can get in, or in and out of a port very quickly. But, but getting people to be working at the overnight hours, incurring the cost for, for, for overnight workers... It's, it's been very, very difficult to uh, accomplish. And as a result, a lot of the, the port capacity that would contribute to a reduction in the type of port and supply chain congestion that we have experienced that would be available is not going utilized. Right. I can tell you this. Many years ago when the CAD systems, the computer-aided design systems came out, they're really expensive. So those of us who are young and in that business, we would get pushed to work at night. And so we got paid a lot of money to be there all night long. And I would work from like what, what, 7, 7.30 till 7 a.m. And everyone, so every time I hear somebody say, they just need to work the night shift. I was thinking, you haven't lived that life. <laughs> it is really hard to come home and try and go to bed at noon. <laughs> and um, anyway, so this East Coast has this port congestion. So by the way, we you told us, LA and Long Beach are the biggest ports on the West Coast. Give us, is Houston the third largest port? No, the, th- the, 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 the largest port on the East Coast is New York. It's called New York and New Jersey. It's, called, it's operated by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which operates the New York City airports, the George Washington Bridge. So okay. it's, it's most, uh, the, the, the vast majority of the, of the container. How big is it in regards to LA and Long Beach? It's probably, I don't you know, it's it's half the size of, of the two of them combined. So, what what are some other big ports on the East Coast that uh, Virginia, Savannah, Charleston? I was supposed to talk to the CEO of Port of Virginia, but uh, hopefully, here in the coming weeks. Yeah, I, I i i hope I hope you you have that opportunity. He's a he's a, he's a good guy, and uh, the so so you have all those all those uh, ports on the East Coast, and and but but here's the the big difference between what I was saying before was that there are so many empty containers now piling up in North America and the ocean carriers don't need them in Asia the way they did before last year. And so they're not taking them out as quickly as they did. And so those empty containers have become a real bottleneck on the East Coast combined with all the cargo that was sent over here to avoid the West Coast longshore labor negotiations. Now you've got all this cargo coming into the East Coast, plus you've got all this empty container volume that has to make its way through the ports moving in the opposite direction. And the the ocean carriers are not incentivized the way they were, in part because so many new containers have been manufactured. If you're an, an importer right now, you have no problem obtaining containers in Asia right now, none. It was a big problem last year. And, you know, I don't have the answer, but it seems to me we're going to we're going to be looking at what can we do to single use containers. Uh, the idea that we're shipping empty containers in a, you know, if I said that, if I said this about trucking right now, I said, yeah, that truck is empty. It goes from New York to L.A. every day empty. You'd be like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> hold up. Stop doing that. That doesn't make any sense. We're always looking for that. It, it seems like the empty miles in that business, I mean, they're cost, but it's also as we look to be more sustainable. And also we look, we, we all want flexibility back in the system. Well, single-use containers, I think, is going to be a, a, a difficult 
things. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, I don't have that There's a very specific reason. You, if, if you ever take a look at, a, at an ocean container up close, you know, whether one's driving by you on a highway. Oh, it's probably in someone's yard by your house. <laughs> those things are so banged up, you, you, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, the abuse that, that, that an ocean container takes as it's moved onto a ship, off of a ship, big waves hit it. You know, oh, exposed yeah. to the elements it's 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 unloaded i mean i mean they they get they they get destroyed and and the only way that they survive is that there are these big massive steel boxes and 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 they're they're lucky to survive even then right and but by the way i want my laptop in a nice <laughs> nice strong container i don't want it in a cardboard one that <laughs> say hey why is my kid, why is my laptop got this gash in it oh yeah it was in a disposable container i don't want that either so you know another thing when we talk about the the movement of ships from the west coast to the east coast that means also all of the truck drivers and all the tr- trucks have to pick up now on the East Coast rather than the West Coast. And so, you know, you might have a really well-developed supply chain. You go, we pick up in LA three times a week. We pick up this container. It goes here. And now all of a sudden, somebody says, no, we don't need that anymore. Pick it up uh, Pick it up in New York. Pick it up in Virginia. So all of a sudden, we have this remaking of the over-the-road networks that we've gotten. So, I mean, we're, we can adapt pretty quickly, obviously. That's what we do here. But it's never fun. <laughs> we, we prefer not to have to do that. Oh, for sure. And the and the the, the trucking segment that serves the ports is is under a, a, tr- a great deal of stress because in many cases these are you know independent drivers who are paid by the load. They're they're not paid oftentimes for uh, sitting outside the marine terminal waiting to get in or waiting once you're in there or or having to drop off empty containers at, 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 a, at a at a location that, that you that you didn't expect it's 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 a it's a very very challenged segment and it surprises me sometimes uh, uh, how how much uh, containerized cargo is moved to or from the ports via truck given you know how much stress these folks are under right oh yeah it's it's you know again the all we talk about is supply chain disruptions. We talk about the exceptions. We talk about the couch that took six months to get here, all that. We had a pandemic, and I'm knock on wood that it's over because we were just talking about, we both had it. If you go back in time and look at like our my grand my grandparents' time, they, they survived that Spanish flu. That was really a pandemic. That was an old school pandemic. This is a pandemic. We obviously lost people and all, every life matters, but... Uh, a lot easier this go round, right? You're getting food delivered to your house, and you're buying you're buying uh, big screen TVs and remodeling your house. It's a lot easier than the last pandemic. Uh, no question. And you know, we talk about people like long, longshore workers and uh, and uh, truck drivers and warehouse workers and last mile delivery drivers. I mean, it wouldn't happen without them. They're the essential workers that start before the other essential workers get there. So let's switch gears. Let's talk a little bit. You mentioned you start. Well, one one last thing. We, I don't want to get too deep into because we will already go past our time. But um, AB five, that law out in California, that's now saying uh, those that owner operator needs to be an employee of the trucking company that's working with. Is that having an impact on the West Coast also? Maybe some impact, but not a great deal of impact yet. There's a certain amount of uncertainty associated with how the the, the drayage trucking sector is going to respond. It is not necessarily as simple as every independent owner operator, and there are tens of thousands of them, uh, automatically have to become a truck, an employee of a trucking company. The, the independent drivers can form their own, their own independent trucking company, even though oh, they own go. a truck. It's a little bit more complicated. They have to have their own insurance. They have to have, you know, they operate under their own authority. New business models will develop and we'll get some workarounds on some of this is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So because, and then the trucking companies can, instead of hiring them directly, might be able to uh, uh, become a, a brokerage and, and essentially broker freight the way, the way uh, truck freight is brokered on, on a domestic basis. And, and, and that might be the way that the, that the industry evolves. Yeah, see, it's a funny thing that we should have, and again, not being political, but it's a funny thing that we should have to have a workaround for guys who are already busting their ass. And then, because people do, I, I don't know of a truck, I don't know of a carrier that isn't growing using 
owner operators. And I don't know any owner operators that I can't wait to get rid of my authority. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely complicated. I mean, there were, you know, the, the, uh, a large number of owner operators shut down the port of Oakland a couple of weeks ago, protesting AB5 because I they wanted that. to retain their independence. But at the same time, there will be, you know, part of the model will be more employee drivers who for certain customers, there's, there's a lot of, there's reliability, there's dependability associated with that. So the big carriers are going to benefit from this no matter what. Yeah, probably so. Yep. So let's switch gears. Let's talk, you mentioned a little bit here, trade volumes and how those are changing. How are those changing? How does this impact our overall uh, supply chain post pandemic? Well, well, one of the, uh, one of the things, and I had mentioned this before, was that, you know, the pandemic saw a huge increase in containerized imports. You know, I had mentioned uh, Joe a little bit earlier when we were talking that the, the volume of imports coming into this country in terms of the number of loaded containers is up 30 percent versus 2019 sort of pre-pandemic period. And and the sort of, you know, popular thinking was that, oh, as soon as we are released from home confinement, we're going to be getting back on airplanes, we're going to be traveling, and we are not going to have to, we're going to back off on, on our consumer spending. And, and, and there's going to be a reversion to a more traditional balance between spending on actual goods and that, that have to be imported and spending on services. But it, but it hasn't happened yet, and and it's begun to happen, but it hasn't reverted to the to pre-pandemic divide as 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 had been expected. And so the the, the import volumes are are highly uh, elevated. The stress on the system remains, and and so therefore that creates a certain amount of unpredictability. When we ask the question and when we talk about a post-pandemic supply chain, when will we get to a post-pandemic supply chain? It's, it's going to take some time. Right, right. It, and, you know, it's interesting. I was walking around. I live close to Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was in Ann Arbor last night, just going for a walk. Beautiful night. And how many restaurants are closed on Monday and Tuesday nights? Now, school is starting in a few weeks, so we'll start to see those some of them open. But these aren't restaurants that cater to kids necessarily. How many businesses are just fundamentally changed? It's funny. People always say to me, I'll see you at that conference. I'll see you here. And I'm thinking, I don't want to get on a plane. Uh, who wants to get on a plane right now? If I was to say, I'm going to shoot over to New York right now, I would have very low confidence that I'm not going to have some sort of horrible disruption on my trip, either going, getting there or coming back. And, and again, I'm not putting blame on it. We had we these airlines had to cancel a million flights, and now they're trying to figure out which ones to add back. They're kind of in the same business we are, right? But it's just hard to it's hard to judge. And again, I think it's also hard to hire. And I think we're and this brings us to our next topic. The world is changing really rapidly. We have the war in Europe, and then we have not a war in in Asia, but we have a China that is going through its own challenges. And I think our relationship with China is going to change over the next twenty years. And that's going to do, so you mentioned, when will the pandemic end? When will we be post-pandemic? I think in a way, it's going to be, I don't want to be pessimistic, but out of the frying pan and into the fire in some regards with some of our supply chains. Uh, uh, Joe, I, I completely agree. I mean, one of, the, one of the realities of how the pandemic has impacted supply chains, particularly containerized supply chains, which is what my colleagues and I specialize in, is that in the past, you had a so-called shock to the system every few years. Uh, there was a big Korean shipping company called Hanjin, which went out of business, went belly up overnight in 2016. That was a shock to the system. It took three or four months for, for the system to kind of get back into balance after that. There were a few other uh, instances that occurred, but every time there was a shock, the system reverted to normal. Ever since the pandemic began, it's been one shock after another, and the system has, has really struggled to regain its its normal sort of balance. But but what you're talking about with 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 China is a potentially another yet another shock, although maybe even a slow moving one, because because you know slow moving <laughs> the number Joe of of loaded containers coming into the U.S. that come from China is over forty percent. Right, are coming from you know, and and if we go to war with China over over Taiwan. 
40% of, of the goods that arrive into the U.S. via container are going to be put at risk. And I wonder how many people fully appreciate how intertwined our supply chains are with China. And then you see what's happened in, in Taiwan over the past couple of weeks. And then you realize, you know, how close to some kind of conflict we might be. That's a scary thought. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I heard, I heard a stat the other day. It was actually in the book that I referenced it. The end of the world is just the beginning. It appears Zion said 50% of supply chain steps on earth happen in China. They are no longer the low cost for virtually any product. They're not the low cost. What they are is the existing facility, right? So I say, I could do that lower cost here in the States uh, using automation. I could do a lower cost maybe uh, in Mexico, but that's where my factory is at. So, th so that's not going to move overnight, but it is going to move. And I think one of the things we're seeing in China, we have a very different leadership there uh, than the, I used to go to China in the nineties. It was, it was a crazy place to do business, but they wanted us to be there. Now, the, the current regime is uh, not as friendly to the West, but also they are going through a demographic collapse. They were 1.3 billion soon to be 650 million. And lots of people, political people say, you can't have a country cut in half and maintain the same structure politically. Um, so we're going to see big changes. And again, you're going to see people moving supply chains and it's not going to be fast. You, you know, another thing I mentioned, the the, the one-way container. If I went, was to move some of my consumer goods from China to Mexico, I don't have to worry so much about empty miles. I don't have to worry about a one-way container because we do a lot of business with them. But I can also see us doing a lot more business. I know that this book that I referenced talks about we're doing a lot more business with South America, especially Colombia. And, and and those to me make so much more sense because I can be in Mexico in a few hours. Going to China, going to Thailand, I've made those trips 20 some hours. <laughs> and culturally different, very different. Uh, we get South America a lot more than we get Asia. I mean, and by the way, not, I, I love people I worked with over there. It's not putting them down, but these people here are in my time zone. <laughs> they speak Spanish. Well, I, I, I would say, Joe, that there is almost nothing more difficult than changing your supply chain. Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> a, take a lot of these consumer brands, frankly, um, have grown uh, highly confident in their the entire system in China. The, the quality is where they want it to be. The cost is where they want it to be. Longstanding manufacturing relationships, abundant transportation capacity. You know, China has built its port infrastructure, for example, way ahead of demand, the only country in the world to have done that. And they are loath to just pick up and leave. It's and it's not easily done. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, over time, over the last you know decade, you know, as the costs in China have have gone up and they have gone up, you have seen, you know, especially labor intensive uh, manufacturing like footwear, for example, has gravitated to places like Vietnam. Overall, you know, you know China's uh, growth in in as a supplier to the U.S. has been slower than 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 other countries, but but it's still a a a, a massive amount of uh, of merchandise that's coming out of China. Yeah, it's also very different costs. So if I say I'm paying. $50 per unit from that thing I get from China. And then somebody says, well, is that too much? You go, yeah, I think it should be $45. Well, do you want to move your supply chain? And here's what the cost is tens of millions of dollars plus potential market disruption. You're not getting uh, the flow of goods while you get a brand new country or brand new location online. You're going to hire people. You're going to invest quite a bit of money. It's look, we're all trying to take risk out of our projects, right? We're trying to de-risk our supply chain. When you say I'm going to move it, by the way, people call me and I've advised many companies along the, uh, over the years on selecting third-party logistics companies. My first, my first, my first thought is always the same: Can we fix what you have? Because changing your 3PL much easier than moving my facility. Changing a 3PL is dangerous. So I always say, you know, if you can get by with what you have, get by with what you have. <laughs> Just yeah, no, I think I, th I think it's right. It's, uh, 
it's one of the reasons why we, uh, uh, there was an economist, uh, Walter Kempsey, he always said that uh, he saw uh, nearshoring uh, ev- everywhere <laughs> except in the data. I will say this. I think we'll see it, but it, to your point, it's going to be slow. And by the way, I have seen, I've seen stuff. I've been participated in stuff moving from Asia to Mexico, U.S. to Mexico. It's, it's never easy. It's, it's, there's always, you're, you, it's always, there's always this idea of, I'm just going to have, I'm just going to replicate my factory. No, it's never that, that easy. Anyway, I'm going to summarize this and I want to get your final thoughts on this. So we're talking to Peter Tershwell and we're talking about the post pandemic supply chain. So we talked about four big things. First and foremost, we talked about the Longshoremen Union. You gave us a, you gave us a history of that and why this might be, might be a problem, but you're optimistic at this one minute. They're going to come up with a, they're going to come up with a plan. But in the meantime, a lot of stuff's moving to the East Coast. And so we have the port congestion that used to happen out West. We got out East. <laughs> and then you said the next thing you talked about is these trade volumes, which are just hard to predict. And every time we have these these trade changes, the imbalances, it puts stress on us and our supply chains in containerized freight. And then last but not least, we just touched on a topic which is needs its own own podcast, which is this. I call it the new world order, but I think somebody already used that. But we are going to see some changes um, in our supply chains, and I think. It's going to be those disruptions that we're going to see over the next decade. And I, I, you know, again, I don't think it's going to be overnight, (laughs) but it's going to happen. And even if, you know, even if we, you say, Hey, I'm not worried. I'm going to do business with China. They seem a little unstable compared to what they were not so long ago. So you might get disruption whether you want it or not. So enough of my blather, Peter, give us your final thoughts on this massive topic. Well, Joe, I mean, I think we, 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 we covered a lot of it. I think that one of the things that, uh, that, that big companies that are running supply chains and, and by that, I'm not talking about the freight forwarders, the ocean carriers. I'm talking about the manufacturing the companies, GMs, the automotive yeah, the companies, 3Ms, yeah. the retailers, all of them, uh, have, uh, very rapidly within, within a very short period of time have gone from, not thinking a great deal about international transportation and logistics <laughs> because it was low cost, it was very reliable, and it was something that that very rarely, for example, came up in earnings calls and in sort of public discussion of big companies. Uh, now it comes up all the time, literally every day. Where there is a new earnings call a transcript that we read where they're talking very specifically about port disruption, supply chain disruption, how they're managing through this. And so that is a change in the DNA of the thinking of the C-suite. Big decisions come when, when the leadership of, of large corporations put their minds to it. So we're going to see a, a, pair of, a, a profound reaction to everything that we've seen. So one of the characteristics of the post-pandemic supply chain, if you will, is going to be the reaction from big companies that were shocked by this and surprised by all the disruption that they experienced, all the, 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 the staggering cost increases. And there will be decisions made because they will say to themselves that we're not going to, we're not going to be put in this, in this type of vulnerable position going forward. So I think you could certainly say that. And, and, and that, that's going to result in, in any number of changes. A, a big one is going to be uh, sourcing uh, changes. And I think that that's going to accelerate. We're, we're watching the data very closely. Um, and, and certainly expect to see a, a an acceleration in in re resourcing, if you will, moving sourcing. It might not be near shoring. It, it might be within Asia, for example, right? Versus you know coming into the U.S. or Mexico or more likely you know or Central America, as you were saying. But but th- there's a big reaction that is brewing here, and we're going to see it take shape over the next you know, anywhere two to two to five years, I would think. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. As you were t- saying that, my first thought was all of a sudden uh, the spotlight, the good news is the spotlight is on supply chain. The bad news is the spotlight is on supply chain. So, and we're in this very difficult time and forever, I think we just took for granted that this thing just works. We've got this, this is, this is a, the delicate balance is working. And now all of a sudden it's not working 
and, and it's, it's working pretty well, but we only talk about the exceptions. That's the nature of our business. No, no one talks about most, 98% of the shelves are full. They talk about the 2% that aren't full. One other thing we didn't hit on, and I think it's going to be something we see also, is we all overreact and underreact. You know, when, when something happens and I don't have inventory, what do I do? I order a lot of inventory because I don't know when that disruption is going to end. I think we're going to see, we saw it last quarter with it, where some companies said, we got a lot of inventory because we thought this this challenge of getting stuff through the ports was going to be here for a long time. And now we got too much inventory. And the problem with inventory is you're never right on. You either underestimated what you needed or overestimated what you needed. <laughs> and, and it's not just, do I have enough of this? It's usually, I have too much of this and not enough of this. <laughs> anyway, enough of my blather. Before you go, Peter, tell us a little bit what's going on over at Journal of Commerce and the larger organization, S&P. And you, you talk a little bit about your conference and also what conferences you'll be attending between now and the time you go to your conference. Well, that I don't know. Um, I am going to be attending the uh, the Global Maritime Forum in New York in late September, which is really a premier gathering of world leaders in the maritime space talking about, nice. about decarbonization. And so I, I'm, I'm very much looking to that. And it's a very important topic. It's going to become only even a more important topic as time goes on. We are actively uh, planning our TPM conference. And so the way our business works. What does TPM stand for? Well, it used to stand for Trans-Pacific Maritime, but we've kind of condensed it. You know, it's, it's almost like Kentucky Fried Chicken used to stand for that. <laughs> right. And now it's just KFC um, because the conference is a little bit bigger than just the Trans-Pacific market. But, you know, in our business, our, uh, our, team of journalists is writing art. We're writing our, our news and analysis every day, but then we're, you know, we build a, a conference program. And 23 years ago, we started, we started TPM in Southern California and it's now the world's largest container shipping event. So it's really where Whoa. the, it's really where the big corporate logistics teams come and interact over a period of, of, you know, four to seven days with, with all of their uh, partners in the supply chain, that would be, you know, the ocean carriers, freight forwarders, port authorities, railroads, truckers, marine terminals. And, and so it's a, you know, a very intensive week. It takes place at the end of February. So February 26th through, through March 1. And it, it centers around a, a very intensive content program that we put on. And where's that at? Long Beach, California. Not a bad place to be in February. No, it's good. I think that that's one of our main <laughs> selling points, to be honest with you. People are desperate to see see a palm tree and, and get yeah, out I, of the Midwest <laughs> or the Northeast. So if you give me a link, I'll put that a link to that in the show notes so you guys can uh, – I'll, I'll sign up to go to California in February. Terrific. Terrific. That, that, that would be great. It's a, it's, I mean, for anybody involved in, in, in this world, it is a highly productive experience. You know, Peter, while we talk, one of the things that uh, strikes me is so often we talk about over-the-road transportation, which is super important. We talk about freight forwarding. We talk about these different things. But the, the foundation that it's all built on is this global trade. And that is dependent on containers so and container ships so if we if so if you want to understand the bigger picture about where the freight's going you know if you say i don't know where my how what the growth of my business can be well it's not a bad idea to start with that macro data that you guys have it's not a bad idea to understand the trends that are impacting global trade to understand you know how that's going to impact those of us who are you know might be mostly domestic transportation Perfect example is the stuff that used to drop off in the West Coast now drops off on the East Coast. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty pretty interesting, and you know, and one one of the great uh, privileges of working for a organization like like S and P, which has in its possession uh, the you know really complete, very uh, granular databases that are measuring all of this. And, 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 you know, as an editorial team, we, we, we make full use of all that data in all of our reporting and in our analysis and also the, uh, the conference programs that we build. Right. Yeah. And I should also say, not, don't just go to California, also sign up for JOC. So I'll put a link to how to sign up for JOC so you can get all these good insights on a regular basis. So you can check that, that out. And if you give me that 
any marketing links you give me, I'll put in the show notes. When I, what I also do is I'll put a link to JOC and a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can reach out and talk directly to you. I appreciate it, Joe. Yeah. And Peter, I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been uh, an education. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. I really, I really, I really appreciate it. You know, obviously lots to talk about, lot, lots, lots going on. And, you know, my, my team and I are, are, are in the, in the mix, uh, every day. We're, we're talking to everybody in this market on an ongoing basis. And so we, we tend to be very, very well plugged in on, 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 on what's happening. So therefore it gives us the opportunity and the ability to talk about the subject, you know, on, on great, uh, great podcasts like yours. So thank, thank you for having me with you. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.